This is our last sermon in our Knock Knock series. Next week I want to start getting us prepared for summer. Summer for many of us is a time of change, of flux. We're back and forth between cabins and trailers and cottages, but I still want us to be united as a church and growing. And Philippians is the perfect book for us to study together, as it's a book that keeps us rooted in Jesus and rooted in joy. So I'll be preaching through Philippians and through the No Grow Show podcast. You can still listen to the message, so we can still have that feeling of being united as a church, regardless of where we are. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Luke 22, verse 39. Luke 22, verse 39 says this, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Today's passage takes place just after last week's passage, at least one of the passages which I referenced. Last week I talked about the incident where Jesus gave the disciples a hard time for arguing about who is the greatest. And so between that argument and what I just read, things have taken a really dark turn. And it's important that we realize this because we need to know how to resist the temptation to give up. When the sun is hidden and the sky is full of dark clouds. It's on those days when our faith feels at a low ebb. It's on those days when perhaps we toy with the idea of just throwing in the towel and living for self. Any of us who have gone through dark periods of our life know what this feels like. And maybe there are some who are going through this now. And as we lie on the floor wondering what life just hit us with, this is often when temptation comes. Now, let's be clear that temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. It's what leads to sin just as pregnancy leads to birth. We are told in Hebrews 4 verse 15 that Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every human being, every single human being who has ever lived is at all moments of their life, at every moment of their life, they're in one of three states. Number one, they are glorifying God. Or number two, they are being tempted to sin. Or number three, they are in sin. Three states. Either they're glorifying God, or they're being tempted to sin, or they're in sin. And so temptation is a crossroads. It's a place where we either believe that God is infinitely lovely, that he's he's infinitely desirable, he's infinitely sufficient for all our needs, or he's not. We believe whether God has our best interests at heart, or he doesn't. It's where we set a course either towards God and his glory or whether we set it towards our happiness. Actually, that's not true. 
Our happiness is wrapped up in God's glory. Our happiness is never an end in itself, but is always a byproduct of choosing to make God first. If we chase our happiness, it leads to our disappointment, it leads to temptation, and it leads to sin. But if we chase after God, if we pursue him, this leads to our happiness. Really, this is true. Only God is worthy of eternal chasing or eternal pursuit because only he can eternally satisfy. If we chase ourselves, if we pursue ourselves, which is the origin of sin and we don't trust God, then we will quickly become people who are discontent, who are selfish, and who are full of sin. So let's return to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It's important to realize, as I said, that Jesus is going through a dark season in his life, and it was just about to get a whole lot darker. He was feeling it. Maybe he was tempted to curl up in a fetal position. Maybe he was tempted to make a quick call to heaven and say, Dad, I can't do this. Get me out of here. I believe that God the Father would have airlifted him back to heaven had he asked that. And so Jesus was in a dark place. He was on the fringe of one of the most powerful storms of his life, and he could feel it coming. And so what did he do? What did he do in this moment? Verse 39 And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So, what do we learn from this sentence? Simply this, that in the hardest of times, Jesus kept on doing what he always did. He could have hidden from Judas and the mob. He could have gone somewhere secret, somewhere hidden. But he didn't. Jesus instead went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Jesus didn't suddenly mix it up and go to the, to the Siloam pool. Judas would have known exactly where to find Jesus because Jesus always went to the Mount of Olives. It was his habit. When we're thinking about temptation, about tough seasons in life, often our instinct is to run away or to hide away. It's to do something out of the ordinary or to hightail it to where we can escape what we know is coming. Because we know it's easier in the short run to avoid than to face. And so we defriend that person on Facebook. We avoid their calls. We start shopping in a different grocery store to make sure that we don't run into them. But what happens when we do that? We're allowing that person to control our life. If we avoid doing what we know we have to do, we become a slave to that thing we're avoiding. It's still there, even if it's not present. But here, Jesus shows us that God's presence accompanies us when we are doing what is right, when we carry on with what is our custom. In these times, God does not stop being Emmanuel. He's still with us. In fact, I think we experience him closer in these times when we choose not to run away, but instead we trust him as we face our giants. And I think sometimes we interpret this internal feeling of discomfort or dread as meaning that God has abandoned us. No, that's not true. God's presence allows us to carry on with life and to resist 
escaping. God's powerful presence enabled Jesus to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he would be found there. So that's the first thing we learn from this little verse. God with us empowers us to keep on living life. And so Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, not just to prove to Judas and the mob that he wouldn't be intimidated. We see this phenomenon regularly, particularly in the places that have received terrorist attacks. When a place is bombed, sometimes the only resistance that we have is to keep on living life. It's like that sign that went up on the London Underground after one of the recent terror attacks. And that sign read, all terrorists are politely reminded that this is London, and whatever you do to us, we will drink tea and jolly well carry on. Thank you. But that is not what's happening here on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is not saying all bloodthirsty mobs are reminded that I am Jesus, and whatever you do to me, I will keep on with, with my daily routine. This wasn't an act of bravado. The Mount of Olives was one of the places where Jesus went to be with his father on a regular basis. He knew where he could retreat to. And so Jesus wasn't hiding from the mob. He wasn't escaping from the hardship that was heading his way. But neither was he putting on a face of bravado and simply facing it. He went to that place where he knew he could draw strength from from his father. So When facing the trying seasons of life, we need to be able to fall back on a routine that we've already established with God. We need to have that place, that that familiar place that connects us with our Heavenly Father. We need a place to retreat to. And so we know that Jesus wasn't hiding. But neither was he rushing to his death like a kamikaze pilot. Jesus instead withdrew to be with God who was his source of greatest comfort, knowing that this was the place that he would be discovered by his worst nightmare. That very place of hardship, that very place of temptation to give in, instead became a place where heaven met earth, where God met and strengthened his servant. Listen to what Susanna Uh, sorry, what Sharon Glasgow writes about Susanna Wesley. She writes this. Susanna Wesley was married to a preacher. They had 10 children of which two grew up to bring millions of souls to Christ. That would be John and Charles Wesley. It's a powerful story if you stop there, isn't it? But if you open the door to her home, hopeless conditions were the norm. She married a man who couldn't manage money. They disagreed on everything from money to politics. They had 19 children. All except 10 died in infancy. Sam, her husband, left her to raise the children alone for long periods of time. This was sometimes over something as simple as an argument. One of the children was crippled. And another couldn't talk until he was nearly six years old. Susanna was herself was desperately ill for most of her life. There was no money for food or anything. Debt plagued them. Sam was once thrown into debtor's prison because their debt was so high, which made their tr- troubles twice as bad. Twice the homes, sorry, twice the homes that they lived in 
were burnt to the ground, losing everything they owned. And it was assumed that their church members did it because they were so mad at what Sam preached in the pulpit. Please don't get any ideas. Someone slit their cow's udders so that they wouldn't have milk. They killed their dog and burnt their flax field. One of her daughters got pregnant out of wedlock, and that man never married her. She was devastated, but remained steadfast in prayer for her daughter. She struggled to find a secret place to get away with God. So she advised her children that when they saw her with her apron over her head, that meant that she was in prayer, and she couldn't be disturbed. She was devoted to her walk with Christ and praying for her children, no matter how hard life was. Sharon Glasgow finishes her account by saying, We can be the best person in the world and still have untold hardships. We need to take Susanna's example, flip our apron over our head and pray in the midst of it all. Susanna's kitchen, that very place of hardship, that very place of temptation to give in, It became instead a place where heaven met earth, where God strengthened his servant. So what do we learn from this tiny little verse at the beginning of our scripture? We still haven't moved on yet. We're still there. This tiny little verse, what do we learn? We learn that in the face of hardship, we need to carry on with life. But that includes spending regular time retreating with God. Why else would Psalm 23 verse 5 say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? Listen to that. You prepare a table. This is God speaking to God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So if we wait until crisis to establish a routine, a custom, it's too late. Jesus could face the most profound temptation that any human had ever experienced simply because he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives to do business with God. Susanna did the same. Susanna Wesley did the same. What about you? What about me? Luke 22, 39-46, that's our passage, and it's such a rich passage. It gives us an intimate glimpse into the suffering that Jesus went through, and we witness the relationship between the eternal Son and his Father. We learn how an angel from heaven came and strengthened Jesus in the midst of his temptation. And just as an aside, this passage shows us that when we take resistance, resistance against sin seriously, heavenly resources are mobilized to help us. But I don't want to focus on Jesus anymore. I want to switch focus onto the disciples. Because as we study them, we can find out what tools we have in our fight against sin. So, let's turn to verse 40. Verse 40 says this. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then verse 46, a few verses later, says this. And he said to them, Why why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter enter into temptation. When they arrive at the Mount of Olives, Jesus warns his disciples. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, but then they fall asleep. They are grieving and and feeling that weight of inevitability and that fear and sorrow, and this all wears them out. They know now that they are to lose their rabbi and master. And I remember when I was a kid that there were occasions when I would be so upset that I would cry and cry and sob and sob. And there was a kind of exhaustion that would overtake me afterwards. The only thing that I wanted to do at that moment was sleep. But for the disciples, this was not the time. 
This was the time to be alert, to be on guard, to have their wits about them. This is the time to resist temptation, to fight temptation with every fiber of their being. But they fail, they sleep, they give in to temptation. And Jesus knows that if they don't resist the temptation now, then they will commit the sin of abandoning him later. So Jesus wakes them up again. And he says to them, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's expanded his original instruction. It's no longer pray, that ship has sailed, that train has left the station. It's now rise and pray. Or as the New Living Translation words it, get up and pray that you might not fall into temptation. Here's a quotation from C.S. Lewis. And I realize that I quote him quite regularly, but his, uh, his words sum up things so well. So here's a quotation from C.S. Lewis about temptation. He says this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Think about that. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a very sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. There's this phrase that's all over the internet, and this phrase is this, you had one job to do. If you Google the phrase, you had one job to do, you end up with some of the funniest memes. These memes celebrate the people who had one job to do but were unable to, to get it right. For example, there's the person who put up the Tim Hortons ent enter sign at the exit. There's the cheerleader who's enthusiastically holding up the go sign upside down. Or there's that person who designed the t-shirt with Star Wars number one fan in big letters with the Starship Enterprise underneath. All these people had just one job to do, and it didn't go so well. The disciples had just one job to do, but this time it wasn't funny. The one thing that they were supposed to do, which was stay awake and alert, they were not able to do. They were so caught up in their own grief that they had no room to spare for whatever Jesus was going through. Imagine the shame and the embarrassment as their rabbi, their Lord, wakes them up to resume their duty, sleeping on watch. But he doesn't scream at them or chastise them. He doesn't yell, you had just one job to do. Instead, he says, rise and pray. We're seeing grace. We're seeing forgiveness. He tells them, get up and pray that you might not fall into temptation. They're given another go at it. 
to get it right. Now, of course, we need to ask the question, what is this temptation? What is this thing that they fell into and must avoid falling into again? What is temptation? What does it look like? Where does it come from? And for that, we turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, where Jesus prays, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus is clearly saying that there are two types of temptation, God and the devil. <clears throat> and the God's sort of temptation is called testing. And the devil's sort of temptation is called temptation. So we have testing, which is from God, and we have temptation, which is from Satan. And on the outside, we might not be able to tell them apart. They look very similar. But the motive of the one bringing either the testing or the temptation is very, very different. This is how we tell the difference because of the motive which is behind the temptation or the testing. And so God's purpose in bringing or allowing hardship in our life is explained in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 to 3, where it says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what does this tell us? That God has a purpose in our testing to reveal our hearts to ourselves and to him and to teach us reliance on him. And in this case, testing is a beautiful thing because God's motive in bringing it to us is good. As Job says in Job chapter 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Understand this. Sometimes the testing that we go through is not a sign that God has abandoned us or does not care. Sometimes it is the very opposite. Sometimes the testing that we go through is a sign of God's commitment to us and his deep love for us. He wants us to see our true selves because it's only as we see our true selves that we realize our need of him. And there's nothing more effective at peeling away the polite facade that we wear than hard times. This is why the Christian can say, I never want to go through that again. But through it, I met God in a way I'd never known before. This is why the Christian can say it was the worst of times, but it was the best of times. But then we also have the devil. So we have God who tests, but we also have the devil who tempts. And from whom we need to be rescued or delivered, as we read in the Lord's Prayer. And his motivation for testing us is very different to God's motivation. Satan's motivation is not that we would come, up, come out as gold, but that we would instead be melted up and destroyed in the fire of testing. He wants us to doubt God and question his goodness. He wants us to utter the words, if God is good, then why would he allow blank? Satan's objective in temptation is the shipwreck of our faith, as we read in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, where it says, be sober-minded, 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And don't those words in First Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful, remind us of these words in Luke 22, verse 46. Rise and pray. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Rise and pray. And so Jesus says to us, you've been tested, you've been tempted, and you've failed, but rise. He says, you feel that you have disappointed me, but rise. You feel that you should tattoo the word hypocrite on your forehead, but rise. You feel that if you can't forgive yourself, then why should I? If you can't let yourself off the hook, then why should I? But rise. These are the words of Jesus in the darkest hours of his life, speaking words of grace into the lives of his disciples who had just one job to do. And in Mark's account of this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, he records Jesus' words slightly differently. In Mark 14, verse 38, Jesus says to the bleary-eyed Peter, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Not rise and pray, but watch and pray. So let's flip this verse around to help us get a sense of the logic here. So what Jesus is saying is this, so you don't enter into temptation, watch and pray. In order for you not to let temptation overwhelm you and put you into bondage, you need to do two things. Watch and pray. Luke tells us, rise and pray. Luke tells us that there's grace after sinning, that we can get up and reconnect with God, that that our previous failure does not have to define our future. But Mark, however, tells us to watch and pray, and this is a warning. This is a somber warning. Watch and pray. Keep your eyes peeled. And when I'm driving along the roads around North Gore, and it's particularly foggy, my eyes are peeled. I'm focused. I'm single-minded. How foolish would it be to have the radio on, to be turning around and talking with the girls in the back of the van? No, I need to be alert. If you try talking to me at that time, I will say, quiet, I need to focus. And yet we drive around in the fog of life, like we haven't got a care in the world. And it's it's not a dumb deer that we have to avoid. It's the master tactician, Satan himself, the roaring lion. And And it's not like he accidentally stumbles into my path. He's got his eyes locked on me. He's bearing down on me. He's chasing me. I am his prey. So watching is my job. God won't do this for me. This isn't God's job. I cannot blame him because of my lack of attention that leads me into sin again. That's on me. Hear this. Satan's working overtime. Just look at society. Just look at your own life. I don't have to convince you that Satan is massing his armada of war machines against you and against me. This is a dark, dark time. There's a lot to be concerned about. And yet Jesus does not call call us to hopelessness. He calls us to action, to watch and pray. So the word watch is Jesus' way of saying to us, this is on you. This is your responsibility. But the word pray is Jesus' way of saying to us, this is on me. This is my responsibility. 
So watch like it all depends on you, but pray like it all depends on God. We cannot do this without his power. So how much are you watching? How careful are you about what you are inviting into your life, into your home? How much are you praying? Jesus says, rise and pray. Jesus says, watch and pray. And Paul describes this reality so powerful in Colossians 1 verse 29, where it's us working and it's God working. He says this, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that works, that he powerfully works within me. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil, I struggle, but it's with his energy that he's powerfully working within me. So my question to you is, do you believe this promise in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 4? That his divine power, this is a promise, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that, here's the reason, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God is a great God. He is the God who is not absent through our dark times. He's waiting on the Mount of Olives, in that place where he always is, with angels standing by to strengthen us with an unending supply of his love and grace and power. And in that moment when life is darkest, when we are betrayed, he's there to get us through. He did it for Jesus. He does it for us. But if we don't have Jesus, then we only have the betrayal. We only have the darkness. We only have the problem. And maybe you don't have a Mount of Olives yet. Maybe you don't have time to regularly meet with Father God. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you're already in the middle of a battle and temptation is overcoming you and you feel it's too late to establish this habit of regularly meeting with God, but it's not too late. In fact, you can make the decision now. It might be under your apron in your kitchen, but as you do this, as you trust Jesus, you can know this God who prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Temptation does not have to have the final say, whatever that temptation is. Sin does not have to be what defines you. Your failure does not have to be the most prominent thing about you. Giving in to sin is not inevitable because Jesus says to you, rise and pray. Jesus says, watch and pray. Amen.